Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Tomas Summers Sandoval, about his book, Latinos at the Golden Gate, Creating Community and Identity in San Francisco, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013. Tomas is an assistant professor of history and Chicano Latino studies at Pomona College in Claremont, California. His research and teaching interests include modern U.S. history, Latino history, oral history, and the social movements of the 1960s. His book, Latinos at the Golden Gate, is the first historical monograph devoted to this important community in San Francisco. Hello, Tomas, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. I wonder if you would uh, begin our conversation today by talking a little bit about yourself and uh, your background. A pleasure, yeah. Well, um, as you said, I teach at Pomona College. Uh, I'm uh, an associate professor there with a joint appointment in history and uh, Chicano Latino studies. And it's sort of a, um, a full circle uh, turn for me. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Southern Californian. Uh, I was born uh, uh, down here, born in Monterey Park and was raised in a town called La Puente, mm. uh, which is about, uh, you know, uh, 12, 14 miles east of East LA. Right. And uh, I went to, uh, for undergraduate college, I went to Claremont McKenna College, which is one of the Claremont colleges, a uh, cluster of liberal arts colleges, uh, where Pomona is one of them. And uh, then I went on to uh, grad school at uh, UC Berkeley, uh, got my master's of PhD, and my first uh, teaching job was at California State uh, University, Monterey Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was there for a few years uh, before coming here to Pomona. So sort of a, a homecoming to come back to the Claremont Colleges. And uh, my, my uh, folks are, are uh, also, uh, they're East L.A., uh, born and raised, uh, mm-hmm. and grandparents are all uh, immigrants from Mexico. Uh, so we're a pretty Southern Californian family. Uh, I know, a little odd, I know that <laughs> an L.A. kid is writing a book on San Francisco. But, <laughs> um but uh, yeah, so uh, we're we're very much, uh, in many ways, uh, rooted here. A lot of our family stories here, uh, and uh, a lot of our family story too is kind of involved in education. I mean, mm-hmm. I have sisters. I have an older sister uh, who is also a professor of Chicano studies. Wow. 
her name is Isamabal. Uh, she teaches at Cal State Northridge. Ah, and uh-huh. I have a younger sister uh, who works actually at your campus, works at USC in uh, in uh, uh, housing, uh, student affairs. Oh, wow. And uh, um, uh, But growing up, my, my older sister and I uh, grew up with, uh, you know, parents in a household where no one had a college degree. And mm-hmm. um, it was in the 80s that we all sort of started uh, getting educated together, you know. My uh, my mom started going to community college. My dad uh, started uh, going to uh, college, and uh, by that time, uh, you know, my sister was applying to colleges, and then I shortly after. So, uh, in that sort of twenty thirty year period, now we all have college degrees. You know, That's my awesome. mom even went get a master's degree. My little sister got a master's, and then, as I mentioned, my older sister is a, is a professor too. So. We're a, we're a very pro-education family, you know. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Cal State Northridge, and uh, my family has quite uh, some strong ties there. My Actually, my father and my uncle attended, um, I think before it was Cal State, I think it was called Valley College. And, That's uh, right, yeah. They took early classes with uh, Rudy, Rudy Acuna and uh, got involved in, uh, you know, some of those, the, the, the early type of uh, development of, Chicano Studies programs, and uh, both just mentioned how it was became really a, a jumping-off point for for their careers. My father eventually became a, an educator and, and elementary school administrator, and my uncle became a, a, an attorney working on social justice issues, uh, particularly with farm workers in similar communities. So, uh, oh wow, I love that connection. Yeah, and and right there, right. I mean, in, in a nutshell, I mean, one of the the kind of the ways that Chicano Studies has an impact. You know, it's a uh, it's, Bigger than just training people like you and me to be academics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. It really does make an impact on on folks working in a whole host of areas. No, that's so true, and I love uh, I love hearing the stories. Whenever uh, I hear a lot of those, actually, and I'm sure you probably share this when when people ask you what you do, what you're interested in. Oh, you're a historian. What you study? Uh, typically, when I, I talk to a number of uh, Latinos, a number of them will tell me how much. Uh, learning about and studying Chicano history or Latino history really inspired them into either some type of public service or education or something, you know, along the, you know, professions along those lines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned how it's, it's kind of odd that a, a SoCal boy or LA boy would uh, end up writing a history of uh, San Francisco. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that, how you came to write uh, Latinos at the Golden Gate? Yeah, well, you know, the, the story of the book really begins kind of the summer before I started my grad work at Berkeley. Um, I had, uh, I had to go find a place to live in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you go away to grad school and I really didn't, uh, you know, have any, any strong connections there except for some real good friends that I, that I knew from college that had graduated the year before. And one of my good friends lived in the Castro in San Francisco, right? And uh, and so I went to go stay with him while I while I looked for an apartment over in the East Bay. And if you know about San Francisco, um, uh, where where my friend was staying, uh, the way to get to uh, Berkeley in the East Bay uh, uh, across the way and back into San Francisco is through BART, through mm-hmm. the public transportation system. Right. And if you're going to go to the Castro that way, you pretty much have to get off in an area called the Mission District. The Mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get off on 16th and then you walk uh, right up to 16th. And so going back and forth for that, that the better part of a, a week, I guess, I, I stayed while I was looking for an apartment. Um, that was my first connection, uh, my first real connection as, a, as, as an adult. 
to to the mission uh, to to the mission district, which is the 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 Latino barrio of San Francisco. Right. And I would, you know, get off on on at uh, 16th Street and Mission Station, and I would start walking. Uh, and and along the way, you know, I'd, I'd grab a coffee somewhere, or I'd, I'd stop and buy something in a store to eat. And right. it was really clear that there was something uh, very familiar about it, and and something also a little different. Right. I mean, it was very familiar to what I knew uh, as a kid in, in East Los Angeles. It was very familiar to other Southern California barrios that, that I was familiar with. But there mm-hmm. were lots of things that left a very different cultural imprint there. Uh, right. Sometimes you could see it in the food, differences in food, uh, differences in the way people were speaking Spanish, differences in the things being sold in stores. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that sort of, you know, planted maybe in the in the back of my mind that there was this community here and that it was a very interesting and dynamic one and that it had a, a story um, that I was interested in at least. And a couple months later, uh, when I took my first uh, uh, one of my first graduate classes in my first semester, I, I, I took a research seminar with uh, Professor Waldo Martin, who ended up becoming my my advisor, mm-hmm. my main dissertation advisor as well. And uh, in that research seminar, they you know you you just have to write a history research project, <laughs> right, right. And, and I didn't I didn't know how to do any of that. You know, I mean, I was so new, I didn't even know what they meant by that, and. Um, and, and I was all like, I, I don't know what to do. And he's all like, uh, how about something on Latinos in San Francisco? And I was yeah. like, oh yeah. We started talking about the mission district and, and there you go. And it, 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 it led into a, a first a paper. And then, uh, over the next couple of years, I had made that decision to, to use that as my dissertation topic as well. Um, so yeah, I tell, I tell the story in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a, 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 I was, I was sort of homesick, you know, in the right, first, right. first couple of months. And I mean, I don't know if, if, if people, uh, you know, share my, my kind of story in that sense, how many Southern Californians go up to San Francisco or San Franciscan Latinos coming down to, to Los Angeles. But that, that familiarity and that difference is, uh, is, is, a, is a kind of a good thing. It's a very rich kind of tension in a way. Because that familiarity really eased any kind of kind of homesickness that I had. Right, and right. The differences were just so so uh, challenging sometimes. Right, like down here in Southern California, I mean, even where I grew up, you know, fifteen twenty miles away from uh, you know Los Angeles, like you don't have to struggle to find Mexican food in super. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, here in the, in Southern California, we have this area, the San Gabriel Valley. The San mm-hmm. Gabriel Valley is, for all practical purposes. A brown suburb, you right. know, or a collection of brown suburbs, you know, and mm-hmm. it has been for my entire life. And so, you know, you can find dried chiles in, in Albertsons or, you know, Vons. Um, but up in, in the Bay Area, man, I, I just, I, it was very hard to find simple staples like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so when I was trying to, to, you know, ease the home, ease the homesickness by making some familiar food. Um, it turned out that in Berkeley, uh, I couldn't find any of the things that I needed to to make like enchiladas, right? Right, so right. I couldn't find the dry chiles, and so I, I finally just went to the Mission District, you know. And and it was standing standing in line to to buy those, you know, that that was really getting us. At, at that same time, I was sort of thinking what I was going to do as a topic for that class, and mm-hmm. um, just sort of the coincidence of everything sort of speaking to me, you know, the streets of San Francisco speaking to me. Right. Um, so that, that's how I first came to the topic, and then it just it just grew into the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Well, and I um, I appreciate you mentioned the the both the familiarity of 
the Latino barrio in, in San Francisco, the mission district, uh, uh, as well as the differences, because that's a, a theme that you pull out throughout the book. You know, the, the similarities and differences between Latino communities in uh, San Francisco as they are opposed to those in, in Los Angeles or Southern California. And, uh, you know, I've had somewhat similar experiences, even just in my moves uh, from, I'm, uh, whether it be from, you know, San Diego where I grew up, up to L.A., kind of where my, my parent, my dad, my father at least grew up here, in searching for, you know, similar cuisines. You know, you just notice differences. You know, in San Diego, mm-hmm. for example, uh, most of the tacos you get uh, are, are made with yellow corn tortillas. And uh, at least in the part of L.A. that we live in, uh, most of the tacos we end up buying are made with white corn tortillas. You know, it's, it's a very uh-huh. small difference, but uh, it, it kind of speaks to, I think, on a, on a tiny bit, you know, that... Uh, what you point out that there are there are similarities and differences um, amongst Latino communities, uh, even in in something you know when you look at a state like California, you know maybe to outsiders, Latinos in California may be a rather homogenous population, or they would assume that in you know, Latino cuisine or Mexican American cuisine would be very similar, you know, throughout a region like Southern California. But you find these very interesting differences, you know, particularly as you as you cover in your book, you know these through a series of migrations uh, that occur, you know, from the middle of the 19th century throughout the 20th century, you have a much more diversifying uh, Latino population that is, you know, coming to intermix with the old population and, and making something quite new. And so, again, that's something that I, I appreciate that you bring out in your, your book and something that yeah, resonated well, with you. me. Yeah, I mean, that, that was, I mean, as you can tell from the, the story I just finished, I mean, that, that's kind of the heart of, of what's underneath the whole, the whole project, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not only uh, just through the, the dissertation, but also over the, the many years later, the 10 years later that it took to develop it into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really understanding that heterogeneity, but also uh, a really impactful part of that for me was uh, beginning to think about that heterogeneity in specific ways, um, really trying to understand what what, what, what's the what's the material condition? What's the material context mm-hmm. that allows that to happen? Uh, that that sustains that and also also shapes that over over a long period of time. Right. Um, but also looking at how that heterogeneity can exist even inside of of as you're mentioning here, even inside of one ethnic group. Right. Mm-hmm. That there can be differences. Uh, in the way that uh, that an ethnicity plays out spatially and culturally inside of an urban space, uh, just just because there are different urban histories, just because there are different contexts to that. Right. Um, so, what being Mexican American in Los Angeles is different than being Mexican American in San Francisco, Certainly, and as, right. well, as well as sharing a lot of of commonalities. That that trying to get underneath that story was a was a big part of what I was uh, very much interested in. You know. Um, and and in a lot of ways, it sort of sh- shaped the book in in ways that I couldn't even understand as a as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I started out, my my first inkling is I got involved in this community and I started to connect very easily with with a uh, cultural history, an arts history, and a political history. Mm-hmm. Right? Those things were very much alive. And uh, I'm talking about the 1994 is that first semester when I'm writing a research paper. All right. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm I'm living in the Bay Area in the in the in the 90s in the before right. before the first dot com dot com boom. Right. Right. Um, and by the time I'm I'm finishing my dissertation and leaving the Bay Area. Uh, the the primary story in the mission is gentrification as, right. as it is now. 
the the exodus of Latino communities, the influx of of other non-Latinos, the escalation in rents, and all all these kinds of things. Um, and so very, very easily I connected really r- right away with a, with a history that was very much alive. You know, mm-hmm. it, it was one that certainly stretched back, uh, to, to the seventies, to, to maybe the sixties. Um, San Francisco is a city that's so rich in its, in its history, uh, in ways that, that are hard for people to understand, I think, if they're not from there. I mean, mm. e- everyday people are historians of San Francisco. Right, right uh, now. I, people, I agree. Every, everyday people have an archive inside of their closet, inside of their home, on their bookshelves, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in their photo albums. I mean, it, it is a city that is just so, so rich in a collective sense, uh, with a sense of its history. And, and those initial things that I connected to in the city r- really you know, exposed me to, to this one idea very early on, which is that there were tensions between historic tensions and even present day tensions sometimes between, uh, Mexican American population and, and another Latino population. Right. Um, that is between, you know, Chicanos and Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the, and the sort of political and cultural tensions of that. And I was, I was very interested in that and I thought, oh, you know, uh, after a, a few a few weeks working on that, I was all like, you know, I think the story here is is how Latinos come into the United States, into a place like San Francisco, and come into a place like uh, a barrio of the Mission District, right. and because of the numbers and cultural dominance of Mexican Americans, sort of assimilate to being Chicano more than assimilate to being American. Mm-hmm. And 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 that that question was a very academic one, right? Yes. And it was a little bit dependent on the way that people defined themselves, you know, in, in terminology and all these. And it, it it took me a long time to sort of work beyond that academic stuff. Um, to really, uh, it was really through the oral history process of just talking to people, spending mm-hmm. time with people, getting more familiar with the community. That you realize that the story there isn't the it, it wasn't any of these things that I was, you know, in in a sense being primed to to talk about. Um, in, in the city of San Francisco, that the stories were a little bit different, right? And you, mm-hmm. you had to sort of begin those stories in, a, in an authentic way by, by beginning them and exploring them uh, on the terms of the community members themselves. And so as, as, this, as this project took shape, it became much more of a community history mm-hmm. in, 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 in every way, shape, or form, not just about the fact that I was writing about a community, but also that, uh, that my, my thinking, my analysis was was very much reciprocal, was a back and forth with, with members of that community and with constituencies in that community. Um, so, yes. Right. Well, and getting to those material conditions, right, and the material specificities of the Latino heterogeneity in San Francisco, uh, you, you start the book and you, you state in the introduction, you make this connection to this long history of European imperialism on uh, the development and transformation of the city itself, as well as its demographics, its social and racial order, and its ensuing migrations from Latin America um, that, you know, even predate the gold rush. Uh, so, uh, and how this is a consequence of U.S. hegemony, European hegemony in, in the region. So I was wondering if we can start by talking about how, uh, you know, the, gold, the California gold rush, it holds this seminal and, you know, dare I say, sacred place, right, in the history of not just the city, but the state of California and the American West, right? And the American West. And so what you, you start to tell is, you know, a history of Latinos and, you know, Latin American gold seekers or Argonauts, right? Uh, within this 
whole movement in, in the story becomes a, a kind of a, a uh, the gold rush sparks this global migration, uh, really, which some, some scholars argue is like this one of the, the major periods of global migration that ends up in now what we call globalization. Um, but you tell us from the perspective of Latin Americans. So will you talk a bit more about how do the experiences of early Latin American Argonauts or gold seekers challenge the traditional story? Uh, that we've heard about the gold rush with all of its accompanying imagery and mythology and, you know, importance to both the sense of, you know, California's identity and to the nation's identity? Yeah, well, it's, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the, the real sort of rich ways that the scholarship on the gold rush has evolved over the last, you know, 20, 25 years is an understanding uh, that it's a lot of uh, economic networks that facilitate the movements of people, mm-hmm. uh, the movement of, of, of capital, uh, the, and, and the growth of, of this, this Western economy, this Pacific metropolis, as, as Bancroft calls it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it, was, it was really exploring that, that that allowed me to expose a lot of the Latino connections. I mean, one of the keys of the period to me, but also the late 19th and early 20th century, was that there is a, a reason why people from certain parts of Latin America are coming to certain parts of the United States, right? Right. It's a it's a it's an old sort of adage, right? We are here because you were there. Right? Mm-hmm. There are there are networks, there are political, economic and social cultural networks that connect specific parts of Latin America to specific parts of the United States. And and beginning with that sort of as, a, as an understanding, um, or developing that understanding as a grad student, but beginning with that as, as I turned it into a book, uh, was, was understanding what are the particular kinds of ways that the political economy of San Francisco, uh, first the political economy of a bay that is not yet the city of San Francisco, and then the early city of San Francisco, connect itself to uh, Latin America and to which parts of Latin America. Um, you start to see that there is this interconnectivity between uh, port towns in South mm-hmm. America and in Mexico uh, to to the Golden Gate, to the, the, the Bay of San Francisco, to Yerba Buena. And, and uh, in a lot of ways, the the gold rush, which, you know, in, in older sort of literature is seen as this, and even in the romantic common understanding of California's history, is seen as this, this, this open, free movement of people, right? Mm-hmm. That, uh, now it's, it's, it, the wealth is there for anybody who wants to go get it, right? And, and as though there's some sort of equal start to that. Um, that, that the gold rush really isn't founded on, on any of those kinds of myths that, that at very, at the very beginning, um, it is the, the network advantage of people in the hemisphere already, primarily Latin Americans, mm-hmm. uh, who already have this economic uh, contact uh, with the Bay, uh, who are able to get there uh, quicker, who are the first uh, gold rush uh, uh, explorers. Right. Uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a ship from Chile that, that uh, goes into the, the port of Valparaiso. Mm-hmm. That's the first one bringing a, a bag of gold dust and nuggets, you know, uh, proof that there is a gold rush happening. There are Latin Americans from Chile and from Peru and from Mexico who are going in to San Francisco Bay and then out into the gold fields um, before before the U.S. East Coast is even hearing about it, right? So this is the year before the 49 right, the 40 right. meters, you know? Exactly. And, and so, so the, the, these networks advantaged uh, uh, people in Latin America. But also there were very specific ways that, that networks advantaged people from specific ports in the United States as well. I mean, one of the stories I tell is, is, is that passage, right? I mean, if you're not coming across 
what is the present-day uh, uh, continental United States, if you're not coming across the, the nation east to west, um, then there are a few ways that you get to San Francisco. And uh, a common one is going around the Cape mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and, and up through the Pacific into, into the Bay. Uh, a much safer uh, form of passage uh, sometimes than crossing the country. Um, and another is that you can go down to Central America and cross over in various parts, Panama and Nicaragua. You cross over through the jungle on foot and then come back up. Uh, and so uh, people from the East Coast, uh, European Americans from the East Coast are, are also coming through Latin America as part of their as part of their story of coming to to the Golden Gate, of coming to the gold rush uh, and coming through San Francisco. And in a lot of ways, they carry with them their, their you know, there's, there's all these little sources of diaries and letters where you get to see that they're carrying with them uh, a lot of their preconceived notions of race and social fitness uh, as mm-hmm. they come into San Francisco. And this is, in many ways, part of a generation who are the founders of the city of San Francisco, who are going to be right. the ones who predominate inside of the social order in San Francisco. And so um, that, that part of, of coming into uh, the, the city and, and building the city uh, is also, in some ways, you know, uh, dependent upon Latin America and, and, and involves Latin America in a big way. Um, it, it's a, it's a it's a way that I, I, I found in the sources to be able to tell this story that was uh, really, frankly, really um, exciting for me because mm-hmm. <laughs> most of the time I'm writing a history of Latinos in San Francisco, it, it, is, it, it is like looking for needles in, in a haystack, right? right? Um, and and that, that, that's the case for a couple reasons. Some of them are just, are just the context of research in San Francisco. There, there are, there's not just the, the major uh, fire that we all know about in 1906, mm-hmm. the, the earthquake and fire of 1906, but there are repeated instances of the city burning down throughout the 19th century. Right. And with that uh, is, is a loss of historical records. Right, um, right. Um, there, it, it, there, are, there are challenges to doing uh, the history of San Francisco before the the, the 19 teens, you know, and 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 that is a big one. Um, but the other one is 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 the the product of numbers. Um, Latinos were were only a prominent population demographically uh, until the gold rush brought in this avalanche of, of people from everywhere mm-hmm. um, that, that made uh, this part of California uh, turn more into, you know, became more like, uh, you know, the American ideal of a white population, a European white uh, population much quicker than other parts of California, right? Right, I mean, yes. As we know inside of Chicano history, Mexican, uh, ethnic Mexicans maintain uh, numeric superiority in Southern California for another generation or two. Right. Even, even in a political power. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's almost wiped out overnight in San Francisco. And, and that opening, uh, that the gold rush provides also allowed for a very diverse population to come into San Francisco, including a lot of Chinese, as we know, who are a huge part of the, yes. of the city. And in many ways, the, the, I mean, San Francisco is, is not a homogenous, uh, city in this time period, even when it comes to their ideas of race. Um, but the, the, the sort of more familiar, uh, white supremacist notions in San Francisco, um, the, the target of their, you know, venom are not Latinos, um, are, they are Chinese. Mm-hmm. They are Chinese Americans, the ethnic Chinese population that is living inside of the city who outnumber, uh, all Latinos combined and who have a much more prominent place inside of the, the life of the city in many ways that opens them up to a lot more, uh, 
of that of that venom of, the, of being targets of, of sort of the the main target of white supremacy in San Francisco in this period. So so even in those in those other ways of finding sources about Latinos, which is through the the mainstream you know uh, political system and mainstream press, um, are very hard because. Most of the time, when non-white populations are popping up, even in negative ways, uh, the population that's popping up are are Chinese Americans. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really hard to sort of you know find all these kinds of ways of of talking about Latinos in in this time period. Um, but th- th- this was this was uh, one of the the ways that I could do it in in a in a way that proved really fruitful to the argument as well. Right, and one of the way you, you you do this is you know to, to describe and talk about this population, like as you mentioned, because it was so heterogeneous in the, in the beginning. You know, beginning with um, whether it be Chileans and and Sonorans uh, and uh, Peruvians, right, is the first kind of uh, gold seekers, and then evolving over time through various waves of migration, is through this concept of panethnic identity, uh, or what in Latin, Chicano Latino studies we we refer to as Latinidad. Um, mm-hmm. So, can you talk a bit more about how Latino Americanos in San Francisco? began to forge a type of panethic unity and community, particularly you, you mentioned the role of language and religion. And so you can talk, can you talk about how that developed and, and how that helped this community, not just to form, but to, you know, assuage the experience of migration yeah. and, and transnational life and, and local discrimination, as you began to, to, to mention. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the book couldn't have, have happened. Uh, um, I mean, I would have abandoned the topic a long time ago, probably, uh, if not before the dissertation phase and shortly after. Uh, the, the book certainly couldn't have happened if not for the, the story of a church, mm-hmm. uh, a church called Our, Our Lady of Guadalupe, La Señora de Guadalupe. Um, and and uh, Guadalupe Church uh, was uh, the first Spanish-language national parish inside of the West. And what that is, is if... if your listeners know about Catholic parishes. Most Catholic parishes are are geographic, uh, and and that is they're they're responsible for a certain neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a national parish is one that is meant to establish and meet the cultural linguistic needs of an entire population. Um, so they cross over geographic boundaries. Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe is a Catholic parish, a Spanish language Catholic parish that was meant to serve the the Spanish uh, language population of the city of San Francisco. And it's founded in the 1870s. It's the product of uh, an effort by local elites, primarily political mm-hmm. elites, people in consulate offices and people in the business community to, to raise money and, and to, to get this church built in, in cooperation with the Catholic church. And there's a you know whole story of sort of the context of that and the background of that, but uh, that I tell in the book, but I think uh, one of the, the, Wonderful things is it's one of these early instances of of what we would call in our academic language Latinidad of of this pan Latin American uh, descent identity and, and taking root inside of their their institution building right again mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm I've always been more interested in sort of the material context of these things uh, than anything else mm-hmm. and 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 this is uh, certainly one of those things as they built this church and as they created a space that on a weekly basis people came as Spanish-speaking Catholics in the city of San Francisco, um, they naturally formulated an identity of themselves bound to that church, right, in a reciprocal way and in a reciprocal way to each other as well. 
Right. So the story of Guadalupe Church is is a story of one of those places, and this is sort of the way the way that I was. I mean, that I approach the book, right? Is that it's hard to, well, impossible just with a historical record to tell a a simple, you know, uh, chronological, um, you know, sweeping history of Latinos in the city, right, and all of its diversity. Right. Um, and instead, what I really tried to focus in on were these moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where these contexts and these moments where a uh, pan Latin American, a pan ethnic, uh, identity and, and context could take shape inside of San Francisco, looking at these, these institutions and looking at these movements and moments where this happened. And the church was certainly, uh, the first one in the city in a, in a clear dynamic way. If not, you know, perhaps the first one <laughs> in, in the West or even in the United States as a whole, right? Right. I mean, I think one of the, one of the contexts, one of the fundamental contexts of, of having this story, one of the, I mean, one of the beginning things that has to be, if you're telling a story of a diverse, heterogeneous Latin American descent population coming together, and developing some kind of cohesive community with one another. Mm-hmm. One of the beginning points has to be the existence of that diverse, heterogeneous population. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco has that because of the gold rush, because of its prolonged 19th century financial and commercial position inside of the Pacific. It has that continual flow uh, that I write about in the book um, uh, where, where they have that, that population. So um, no other place in, in the United States has that kind of diasporic representation of Latin America right. um, within its boundaries at that time. Um, and, and I think it's important, too, that this is a, a, a diverse population in terms of class, of economic standards, mm-hmm. of access to capital and political influence. I mean, this, this couldn't have happened if, if everybody who was coming were just uh, farm workers. Right. If everybody who were coming were just manual laborers, right? railroad workers. Um, part of this story uh, uh, taking place, part of the story playing out, is really reliant upon uh, um, um, an elite class, uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, an emergent uh, sort of you know bourgeoisie class, um, who who can all not only bring funds together but also have the political clout to get something done. Right, and that that says a lot about that that commercial linkage story again too, right, uh, with with San Francisco and parts of Latin America. So the church becomes this this uh, central part of of the of the story. Um, um, how how that church uh, took shape and the kinds of of um, both struggles uh, that, that existed in them. I mean the the the, the documents that are that are you know in the archives uh, about that church, the newspapers that detail uh, the the social life and, and cultural life and religious life of that church. They, they all detail both uh, the successes of, of cohesive community formation, mm-hmm. um, where people are coming together for what they called, for example, unified Spanish masses, right. uh, a unity mass or a unified mass, where the different contingents, the, the Mexican, the ethnic Mexican population, and when I say ethnic Mexican, I mean like Mexican-Americans as well as right. uh, Mexicanos born in Mexico, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Regardless of where they're born or regardless of where they're born. The ethnic Mexican population and Chilean population came together for uh, an annual mass to celebrate the independences of both countries, right? Right. So we get, we get instances like that where, where there's uh, evidence of, of that cohesion, of that new cultural formation. And uh, all those records also tell you know, persistent stories of rivalries. Of, of, of fights and struggles between these these distinct ethnic uh, constituencies of the church too, um, where there are are very strong, uh, in particular through the early 20th century, um, 
really strong rivalries between uh, an ethnic Mexican contingent and a Salvadoran and Nicaraguan one mm-hmm. uh, who, who have battles over the space. So battles over the identity of the church uh, played out, battles over, you know, priests and, and, and who, who, who they think priests are showing favoritism to. Right. Um, you know, all these, all these stories exist, too, at the same time. Um, so it, it becomes this wonderful uh, microcosm in many ways of, of, the, of the Latino San Francisco as a whole, you know, sort of playing out inside this church. And then as I read about uh, in, in that chapter and in the chapter after, um, Guadalupe Church, uh, which is, is today, the building is still there. It's, it's no longer a church, um, but it, it closed. It ceased being a Catholic church in 1992. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, th- th- that right there is a, is a great... Uh, indicator of its success over right. the long period of time, right? That for over a century, for uh, uh, over a century, it existed as as the, the the Latino church inside of San Francisco, or at least a functional Latino church in San Francisco. Um, but it's it's the building is located uh, on Broadway uh, in what is present day uh, Chinatown, mm-hmm. near near where Chinatown butts up against North Beach. And uh, that that church uh, uh, closes uh, essentially because most of the population who lives anywhere near it uh, are not Latino anymore, uh, right. and that's exceedingly the case by the 1940s and 1950s as Chinatown sort of expands out. Um, but also uh, by the mid 20th century, there are uh, clusters of Latinos living inside of the Mission District and clusters of Latinos living in other parts of the cities and also Spanish-speaking priests serving parishes all over the Bay Area, not, mm-hmm. not just in the East Bay either, but also multiple parishes in San Francisco. And all that makes the need of the church uh, sort of sort of dissipate over time. So that's why it finally closes in 92. Um, but, but up into that, in the high point of its period, in the late 19th and early 20th century, until that that uh, ethnic transformation happens in the, in the immediate community surrounding it, Guadalupe uh, also becomes the hub of one of the first Latino barrios in the city. Right. Um, a good measure, uh, a, a, probably a majority of its constituency, uh, of its parishioners, were living within the, the immediate geography of the church. And... Uh, you also see the birth of a bunch of businesses uh, that, that start to take place there. Businesses that are, that are you know, ones we'd expect, supermarkets, restaurants, mm-hmm. um, but also dance halls, you know, lawyers, doctors, printers that are, that are all publishing in Spanish. Um, it becomes the Latino uh, barrio of the, the Mexican colony, as they call it, or the Spanish colony, as the press sometimes calls it, uh, in San Francisco. So that, that church, uh, actually, uh, another, you know, vibrant demonstration of its success is the fact that it creates what every, anybody would call Latino community, right? Mm-hmm. A, a diverse, heterogeneous uh, group of people living together in the same spaces, you know, patronizing many of the same businesses. Yeah, and that story I found really interesting because, uh, you know, it, it is quite unique in, in the telling of uh, or other narratives of Chicano or Latino history, particularly as we compare it to Southern California, which, as you mentioned, already had a uh, pretty large Mexicano or, or what were then called you know, kind of the, their elite were the Californios, but it had a strong Mexicano population as well as a, a Catholic tradition. Uh, you know, you have you know the visible edifices of all the the missions that ran up and down you know the coast of California primarily, and and but 
really predominate the, a lot of the Southern California landscape. And in San Francisco, although you, you know, there, there was a mission, but you know, you, you didn't have that much of a, a sense of a strong Latino presence. So I really did enjoy, uh, your focus on, on how this effort to, to build the Guadalupe Church and that becoming the, the center, the focal point, and at the, at the same time as a manifestation of a growing Latino community and the, the relationship the two had in both reflecting the emerging Latino culture and also creating it, you know, and that's what I, I thought was really, really interesting about this part of the story that uh, the oh, well, building, it comes to kind of predate, yeah. you know, both kind of like serve as a prologue to what's coming, you know, as far as the, the Latino, the, the church itself, right, as a manifestation in the physical space of, of the city, but then it continues to evolve. And as far as, I mean, the Latino culture, you know, of the city, as you mentioned with the demographics that continue to change, uh, other waves of, of Latin American migrants come, um, and other Latino populations, uh, grow and develop throughout the city, right? Um, mm -hmm. and so one of the primary themes of your book, you know, addresses, and we mentioned this earlier, addresses the role of European imperialism in the formation of, you know, commercial communication and kinship networks that worked in tandem with migration to establish this diverse Latino community in San Francisco. And this was particularly true in, in the early to mid 20th century, right? As the U.S. solidified its, its reach and, and control in, in many ways of the economic and political conditions in Latin America, which, prom which prompted these successive migrations, particularly from Central and South America, which further diversified the Latino population. So I was wondering if you would discuss uh, a, a bit more, this is going along what we were just talking about, the ways in which Latino migrants um, remade home uh, in San Francisco. You mentioned that that particular phrase, that they were they remade home, and in many ways it was because these economic and material conditions uh, that had brought them there it kind of prevented them from returning home. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more more? You talked about the church and some of the institutions and businesses they built. Uh, what else did did the community do? Um, yeah. People? Well, you know, that that's where... Um that that's where the the foundation of the of the story for me always was, which is uh, to say that m most of the the book uh, that's that's different uh, than the dissertation is what we just talked about. My ability to go back into the nineteenth and early twentieth century. Mm -hmm. Most of my dissertation had focused on on sort of the post World War II period up until right. probably the nineteen seventies, and most of that was dependent upon a lot of oral histories. And one of the things that really came out of out of those oral histories were, were those sorts of very interesting and sort of diverse stories of Latinos who grew up in San Francisco at the time, who migrated to San Francisco at the time. And I can give you an example of, of sort of the, the the sort of unique differences, I think, is uh, there was a, a woman I interviewed who actually makes it into, into the book. <laughs> Um, because there's like 17, 18 people I interviewed that, that eventually get cut from this. Uh -huh. um, but uh, uh, Elva Sanchez, who has uh, a super interesting story. She's uh, Mexicana, born in Mexico, uh, and they they moved to San Francisco in the, in the post-war period. And uh, they live in a part of San Francisco that uh, does not have a lot of Latinos in it. Mm -hmm. And her story there is very common uh, in that post-war uh, migration movement uh, the, there is a growing number of Latinos who are moving into this one neighborhood, the Mission, right? the mm -hmm. Mission District. Um, but there are also Latinos scattered still in other parts of the city. And unlike a place like Los Angeles, where it would be probably rare uh, to see Latinos living in places where there aren't other Latinos, 
um, there, there are uh, just the scores of stories that you hear of people who grew up and they were the only one in their school or one of two in their school. Right. And in many ways, her, her uh, acculturation into, into being uh, an American, her, her familiarity with becoming a San Franciscan as she was a kid was dependent upon a different sort of racial context than, than other Latinos would have in, in other places. And, and that was really just a function of those numbers and also the unique diversity of the city. Right? So a lot of her becoming aware of her own Latinoness, of her own Latinidad, in, in a sense, of her own uh, history, is really through the prism of the African-Americans who she grows up with mm-hmm. and the, 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 the political and social lives uh, that, they're, that they're leading. Uh, and she's in a kind of, you know, racial dynamic and, and the beginning of the civil rights movement becomes very important to her and her community. Um, and uh, eventually sort of she starts to make those connections about her own, uh, her own family, her own community history and, and her own uh, understanding of, of rights that are both denied and, and, and owed. Um, th- those kinds of, of interesting ways as people uh, begin the, the daily life of, of making home, um, of, of having children, of, of having those children be educated inside of these institutions like the, the school schools. Um, um, it, it, that was a, a, a part that really just uh, was always uh, alive inside of all these oral histories. And as I said, this, is the, this was the, the rich part of, of San Francisco. Um, actually, when I, when I had begun oral histories for this book, this was the second oral history project that I had done in the city. I had, I had done this uh, major oral history project uh, for um, the, the, the city and all these other groups who were farmed out to do the work mm-hmm. um, for the, the, the demilitarization of the Hunter's Point uh, uh, community, the Baby Hunter's Point community, when right. they, they turned the military base into, into uh, local usage and they needed a community history. And I was hired on to, to interview a bunch of uh, local residents in the Bayside Hunter's Point um, community, Bayview Hunter's Point rather. And um, this was like in the first two years of my grad work. And, uh, and, and, and that, that was my first introduction to, to sort of the two things. Uh, the first, which I mentioned already, that people have such a healthy sense of the city of San Francisco, of their own history and of the, the history of the city at large. Um, but, but also uh, that uh, those stories are so interconnected mm-hmm. with one another. Um, the, the stories that, that come through uh, people's memories and the oral histories are, are, are really uh, an important story inside of Latino San Francisco and, and everyone else's <laughs> San Francisco. And it's this post-war transformation that's happening in the city. Um, there is a, a realignment of where racial populations are living. And a lot of that is coming from the kinds of economic transformations that are happening inside of this city, right? Um, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, there are still connections, important connections. You know, coffee and fruit are right. coming into the port of San Francisco every day. Mm-hmm. You know, as these commodities come, as these connections develop of the United States and parts of Latin America, so too will those people uh, from those countries come and travel um, into the city and come looking for work, come as part of those companies engaged in work. Um, but there's, there's also this other transformation that's happening in San Francisco that is one that we focus on a lot in U.S. history in the 70s and 80s, which is the, the, the loss of a manufacturing base, right. the deindustrialization of the American economy, mm-hmm. where we move from the, the, the old bellwethers of, of a healthy economy into this, this new one that we're familiar with in the early 21st century of an intellectual economy, a technology economy. 
Um, the, these things are happening uh, uh, much, much uh, more vibrantly in San Francisco uh, earlier, but also they're happening everywhere uh, before the 1970s. We just don't focus on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, as, as we know from from other literature, the, the end of World War II is really the beginning of this of this uh, 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 slow de-escalation of the manufacturing base right. in the city in cities all over the United States and in industrial places all over the United States. And certainly it's happening in San Francisco. There's just a steady decline from the 50s to the 60s and 70s and 80s. And with that changes uh, what people are working in, how they're working, and where they're living as a result of work. You know, the Mission District uh, ends up becoming one of these uh, last places that has a, a good number of factories uh, employing people inside of the, the city of San Francisco. And Latinos are, are heavy in employees inside of those factories. Um, the Levi's factories, for example, uh, with it that is now no longer there. Um, but Levi is a company that, that was founded in San Francisco, founded right. as a result of the gold rush even. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of their last uh, factories inside of the city is right there in the Latino barrio. You know, so, so, you know, that, that, that change and that, that tightening up of, of the, of the labor economy, um, in San Francisco is, is also bringing in people and, and bringing them into specific places where they create, you know, community. Um, and I, and I, and I frame that, that, process of creating community as, as, as homemaking, you know, the endless spiritus concept of homemaking, you know, this recreation of, of home, um, you know, and that, that builds off of a whole bunch of other, you know, literature inside of Chicano Latino studies as well, right. you know, Mexico de Afuera and other concepts, but the, the interesting ways that they, that they recreated that sense of, of, of being that sense of place, that sense of community, that sense of, of family. And, and also in a certain period of time, uh, later in the book, also confronting, uh, through, through political and social movements eventually, right. uh, to, to fill the gaps, right? And, uh, and the things that a community needed and the needs of their community that were going un- unaddressed, that were going ignored. Um, and, and then the ways that, that movements also become, uh, another kind of geography, uh, that movements become a geography of where, where, uh, pan-Latino community is also formed. Right, and can you, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that segued right into um, well, you know, one of the, the, the last questions I wanted to bring up was the first you know, few chapters of the book focus um, more on the, the building of the sense of Latin, Latinidad through you know, processes of uh, first, you know, migration, community formation, and, and cultural ingenuity and, and coalescence amongst, amidst a, a diverse Latino population. And while that continues, uh, you know, through the post-war era, your narrative at least shifts uh, to focusing more on social and political movements and uh, in the 60s and, and 70s um, in particular. And so can you talk about it? Because this is what I thought was really interesting about that part of the book is that you use Latinidad in, in kind of a, a different way. It's certainly place-based, and that's what I appreciate, appreciate um, that you discuss Latinidad as a type of political identity and and activity that was specific to um, San Francisco, at least in the way that, it, that that this sense of Latinidad emerged. So can you talk about that a little bit more in regards to the, the politics and the activism of, um, you know, the, the generations of Latinos in, in the 60s and 70s? Uh, can you talk about how their politics uh, and how you de- can you talk about that and how you define it as a form of Latinidad and what that meant and how yeah. it looked like? I think a, a key to that was approaching this uh, in ways that I, I, I felt were 
were a little bit different than than in the ways that I think the scholarly literature would have pushed me to, mm-hmm. which is uh, first to to think about uh, these things that are uh, in in legitimate ways thought of as identity movements, mm-hmm. uh, movements that are very much involving identity and 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 both create new identities, also rely upon identity uh, in order for their their formulation for their constitution. Um, but to, to think about identity movements differently, to not think about them solely as movements about identity, mm-hmm. right. but to look at what the material sort of space is, again, of, of these movements taking place. And that, that really helped me decide which ones to talk about and which ones not to talk about, mm-hmm. um, or, or which ones to focus more of my, my energy and time on uh, rather than others. And I think it were the, the, the kinds of... Uh, movements that were really about uh, people coming together to address certain kinds of of uh, spatial and context power relations that, that were the most uh, vibrant for me. And in this way, uh, Latinidad again becomes a, a function of a very specific kind of social, political, economic uh, uh, geography. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And, and the the... The same is, is sort of true, I think, uh, for the, the last chapter of the book, which focuses on sort of movements for a younger generation of sort of what we might think of as the, the Latino baby boomers mm-hmm. of, of San Francisco, you know, give or take, depending on when you define the generation. Right, yes. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and, and thinking about those more youth-based movements, which are very much more uh, identity-centered, or at least uh, an identity, a political identity that's reliant and reflective of a very specific kind of analysis of power and self and community. Um, but that even those uh, were rooted to very specific kinds of, or the ones I focused on were rooted to very specific kinds of economic and 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 demographic context. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in in doing that, um, that, that's how they sort of connect up to to this longer story of of how Latinos are coming together and developing these instant these institutions, these 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 spaces where. Uh, a pan-Latino identity can be formulated and expressed, and right. and um, that that also sort of reflects how how it's not it's not just about or even much about language at all, right? Mm-hmm. Are they calling themselves Latino here? Or right. They calling themselves Latino there because um, it's a whole host of different terms that reflect that pan-ethnicity, mm-hmm. and also that pan-ethnicity doesn't necessarily shove away your own particular ethnic identity right. uh, at the same time, right? They're, they're, the, they're the coalescence of, of multiple kinds of identities coming together in political formation. Nor did it, uh, as you mentioned, it, nor did it exclude non-Latinos, right? I mean, you, you mentioned yeah, this well, Latin data was very in, inclusive. There right there is, is, is a perfect window into that unique demographic reality of San Francisco. Right? That even the mission district, which is becoming increasingly Latino in, in the post-war period, um, up to the, the point later on where it would be prob- probably a Latino majority, in, you know, in the period after uh, the book is written, but it's almost half in the in the period where the book stops. That means that half of the community is not Latino. Right. Right. Um, that that the mission district is is primarily the thing that ties it together, and you in, you you can see that now. In, in, in its in its continual battle against gentrification, right. what really ties it together is a is a, a cohesive class reality and yes, identity, yes. Uh-huh. Uh, class experience. It is a working class community, mm-hmm. and it was a multiracial working class community at that time. A working class, multiracial, multi ethnic community, multi generational community that had a 
Latino plurality to it. Mm-hmm. Right? It was also the, whose, 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 whose cultural changes and, 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 and whose, whose immediate present was being determined by, by the Latino population, right? They were the fastest growing and they were the ones who were clearly emerging as the, the, the largest, uh, well, had already emerged as the largest. Um, and, but so that, that presents certain kinds of challenges, right? That if there's going to be a legitimate community organization that really does manifest itself into, into real community power where this uh, population can have some control over the space, some autonomy over the, the geographic space in which they're living, the neighborhood in which they're living, uh, that it had to do more than just bring Latinos together, bring that Latino diversity together. It had to also bring together that multiracial, multiethnic uh, population together too. That's the only way it could have a, a legitimate right. uh, uh, presence, uh, an authentic uh, presence, uh, an authentic democratic kind of presence. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the story that I tell in, in a group called the Mission Coalition Organization, right. which is mm-hmm. Uh, in, in many ways, just like a, a wonderful like snapshot of, of the beauty of the politics of San Francisco in the post-war period, right. post-World War II period. Um, the MCO is, is dependent upon primarily uh, um, two groups of people early on. Uh, one are the, the aging, homeowning population of the Mission District who are uh, white, European-American uh, many are, are immigrants, uh, but from European uh, countries. Uh, um, many are U.S.-born uh, Americans, and they're the, the property owners. And then the, the largest property renter class of, of Latinos. And that Latino group at that time was being represented by a, enough of a collection. There was enough of a, of a, of a healthy uh, political establishment inside of the mission and the city as a whole uh, that, that become the initial uh, sort of foundation of the Latino constituency in side of the MCO. And that's groups that are, that are still pretty diverse. There's political groups. There's groups who are being, uh, who are working through things like war on poverty. Mm-hmm. There's labor organizations, right? There's, there's things like MAPA and other political organizations that were part of the, of the city. There's some Spanish speaking religious base there as well. Um, but they're able to sort of come together too. And the, the first fight is really just opposing uh, redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's how it starts. The mission district was, was next in line uh, to 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 you know be gutted and turned into the city of the future uh, that San right. Francisco was coming, and uh, the the people, both the property owners and, and the 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 Latinos and others inside of the Mission District, had seen what had happened to the redevelopment story of of the Western Addition Fillmore District, of of an African American community that was essentially gutted and displaced. Uh, where urban renewal becomes urban removal, as, right. as the, the the language goes, and so they just wanted to stop it, and and they did. They come together effectively, and they they stopped it in that sort of diverse uh, group. Um, and then later, what what happens is the the opportunity of a of a war on poverty, essentially a war on poverty program uh, called the Model Cities Program, a federal funded way uh, that is a little bit bigger than just uh, redevelopment. That it's really uh, more sort of a holistic renewal uh, inside of a community. It could be about jobs. It could be about health. It could be about uh, buildings. It can be about a whole bunch of things. Um, but it was about funding community improvements uh, through the community itself in, in a typical war on poverty uh, fashion, right, that you have to have in a, a large, authentic constituency representing the community to get that funding. And, 
And so uh, when when the the model cities possibility started get uh, started getting talked about in the board of supervisors and city hall, um, they they come together in the mission district again uh, to not only uh, this time just oppose outright uh, redevelopment, but to control uh, model cities. Right. And model mm-hmm. cities will give them control over uh, a lot of funds, and and it's creating this uh, this multi-issued organization uh, that they call eventually becomes called the Mission Coalition Organization. Mm-hmm. Um, where they're doing the work uh, on the issues that they want funded through model cities while they're also fighting for control of that model cities program um, that represents uh, clearly one of like the high points of, of the mission district story uh, of the last century. I mean, it, it, it involves a critical mass of that community. It involves a, a super majority of the community organizations of that neighborhood. Uh, it's a it's a multi-issued organization. It works on on coalition. It has this representative structure, uh, where in the case of Latinos, you see a lot of the diversity being represented. Uh, they, they create a vice president position for for all these different kinds of groupings, like elderly and youth. There's a Mexican American. There's a, a Central American. There's a, a Salvadoran, uh, Nicaraguan uh, vice president, and, and mm-hmm. everybody knew what those terms would mean, right? Like the Central American wouldn't be uh, filled by a, a Salvadoran, right? That the the Latin American wouldn't be filled by a Mexican, right? The, right. They, they, but they they create this organizational structure that literally gives every identified constituency space at the at leadership table, um, and and they they create campaigns uh, campaigns around the issues that they uh, were were most concerned about. Uh, I mean, I think they they do it in a in a creative and and in a in a in a really effective way as well. To give you an example of, of those, I mean, I think two two really great stories of them. The first is there was a there was an adult theater uh, right there in the heart of the Mission District, in the heart of the commercial area of the Mission District uh, in this time period. And and more and more, of course, the the Mission at this time are are, are families. Um, they don't want that theater there, but you know, this is the sort of slummy part of town to the city of San Francisco. And they want to get that that adult theater uh, pushed out of town. And uh, the way that they do it is they uh, they dress people up as nuns, and they give them cameras. And as people walk into the theater, they take pictures of them. Mm-hmm. And as mm-hmm. people are parked in the theater, they take pictures of the car, and they hand out flyers saying that we're gonna you know tell your 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 families that you come here, or tell your local priest or minister that you come here. Right. The, the people who were dressed as nuns were not nuns. Right. Uh, were often were not nuns. The, the cameras didn't even have film in them. Right. But this is a way of of them finding these kinds of creative forms of theater almost to to express their agency over that space. This right. is our community, right? This is, it should be something that meets the needs, meets the entertainment needs even of our community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and another is, is, right. is their, their, uh, their jobs effort. Um, their jobs committee, their employment committee was uh, really their, their, their largest success. They would have the, the largest uh, grouping of people involved in it on a weekly basis. Um, the reason was is that they it developed this really interesting uh, point system, um, and that point system only came after uh, uh, their success in in negotiating with local employers for for jobs, jobs for youth, jobs for adults. Uh, one of the first campaigns I had the the, the really just great fortune of interviewing uh, very early on, like the very first interview I did in in the in the late '90s was with a man named Mike Miller. Mike Miller is is a 
is a wonderful San Franciscan. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was the he was the organizer of the 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 organizer behind uh, for the Mishkolish organization. He was mm-hmm. their hired organizer, which is to say he's not the, the head of it, right? But he's right. the person who comes in to do the, the actual grassroots organizing work uh, for it as as an employee of them. Uh, Mike, uh, as a, a long history in the city, he was he was part of the the Berkeley movement known as Slate uh, that, that takes over student government and that leads into the free speech movement. Mm-hmm. He was the the head of the SNCC office, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee office in the city of San Francisco, um, so a participant in in that kind of avenue of it. He he worked uh, for Sololinsky and was a, a really close uh, uh, associate. Of, well, uh, he was very young uh, compared to Saul uh, towards the end of the life. <laughs> right. Uh, he had a very personal relationship with Saul Linsky, uh, as well as a professional one where he learned a lot from him. And, and Mike also, at that time, in the basement of his house, had uh, just a line of, I don't even know how many file cabinets it was, 15, 20, uh, that were just filled with all the records of his professional life. And uh, so his, his archive and his oral histories became the foundation of, of this chapter. Um, and, 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 um, and so, so Mike, Mike, uh, helped, uh, start to organize, uh, this, this employment committee that negotiated with, uh, the local employers for jobs. And the first one was, uh, one of the first ones was, uh, Wonder Bread had a factory right. there in the mission. Um, and they thought, well, this is a good opportunity for them to hire a couple of high schoolers. Let's mm-hmm. just get them to agree to hire some high schoolers. And that, that, and, and that turned into some summer jobs and that turned into some jobs after they went back to school for adults and, and other employers were following suit. And they were thinking, well, how, how are we going to, how are we going to, uh, you know, get these, these jobs to people? Like, how are we going to choose who gets these jobs? Because a part of the agreement was we would provide the person to you. You hire the person we provide. And what they do is they created the point system. And the point system was you got points by attending meetings of the MCO by doing work and participating in campaigns of the MCO by working in the office of the MCO. And the people who were in the employment line that had the most points were the first ones to get the job. Mm-hmm. So that just, you know, the, the employment committee just, you know, balloons overnight uh, once they start getting jobs into one of their largest committees. Uh, but but it's a, it's a, a wonderful reflection of, of what's at play. The MCO is, is not just uh, some sort of movement where people are protesting Right. for something right. from City Hall. Um, what they are doing, what Mike is, is doing is, is grassroots, in a, in a grassroots way, he is organizing uh, people together to create their own institutions that mm-hmm. they control, their own committees, their own campaigns that they control in order to create the changes that they want in their community. And, uh, and people come together in, in, in that committee and, and in many ways it's a uh, it, it's the, it's like a, a crucible, right, of where all these various identities, interests, histories uh, get blended into to one another, and and through through the heat of of that movement and those times, um, it gets to produce this this very specific kind of Latino mission identity that that is the dominant one inside of that organization. Uh, even though it would be wrong to to call that organization just a Latino organization, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's much bigger than that and has, has many different diverse constituencies involved in it as well. Right. And you, and you mentioned that you mentioned earlier that, that, that the MCO is a great window into the, you know, politics and, and movements of San Francisco at the time. Uh, I also found it very encouraging, uh, and a reminder of, of what's possible and how to build broad, 
coalitions that address the needs of communities and, and working people and engage them in the democratic process. So I definitely think it's a, it's, it's, it's part of one of those, um, it's a part of history that we can really, it deserves reading for the contemporary era and thinking about, okay, how can we apply this to the current situation? Because this is, that's the reality in, in many of, uh, in our cities and urban centers, you know, throughout the country. I mean, despite the fact that the Latino population has boomed and, uh, is uh, becoming the predominant minority community of, of most major metropolitan centers, still in, their need to address issues that are important to their communities, right? There, there's the need to build broader based coalitions that allow people to work with you and identify with these issues beyond just the sense of ethnic identity. All right, Tomas. So thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. I, I appreciate uh, all the discussions that we've had about your, your book and these really fascinating uh, topics and different ways Latinidad was established in San Francisco. Uh, I was wondering if you could wrap up our, our time together. I'm very interested. I know you have a new project that you're working on, and I was wondering if you could spend a few moments talking about that. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for the, the chance to do that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little different of a, of a project, um, but it's one that's still uh, very close to my heart. Uh, I'm writing a, a book on the easy way to talk about it is the impact of the Vietnam War on Latino communities. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's been uh, my work for the last four years, really, uh, collecting oral histories with uh, Chicano and Latino Vietnam veterans, primarily here in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm also interviewing uh, their families, uh, family members, as well as children. Um, and the, the goal here isn't to, to write a, a book of war stories, but really to uh, think about the myriad ways that the war impacted uh, Chicano community formation, Latino community formation in the Southwest uh, in the 40 years since the war ended, um, and and also to to I mean really clearly it's sort of unavoidable. So it's so clear it's to be able to to use the life experiences of these families uh, as a window into the history of, of this generation of baby boomers uh, coming of age in the 60s. As well, so it's it's a uh, it's it's a it's a much bigger thing than I I think uh, than just sort of uh, telling, uh, recounting, or or even celebrating sort of war stories and war service. It's really looking at how uh, communities' uh, economic and political uh, histories are are shaped by uh, family members' participation inside of inside of the military in this time period. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's, as I said, it's a personal story because it's, it's, it's very much my own. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I'm, the, I'm born in 1972 and my father's a, a Vietnam veteran. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my, his older brother, my uncle, is, a, is also a Vietnam veteran. Uh, probably growing up, every other male I knew, every other adult male I knew was, was a, a Vietnam vet. Uh, you know, most of the dads in the great school I went to were Vietnam veterans. Wow. Uh, it wasn't until a little bit later on, you know, that, that when you're a kid and you realize, wait a minute, everybody's dad's not a Vietnam veteran? <laughs> it's, it, 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 uh, it's, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, you don't expect 100%, but right. it, it felt way bigger than, than the, I mean, it's only 10% of that generation. Right. Only mm-hmm. 10% of the males of that generation. Uh, uh, participated in, in the Vietnam War. Like, wow. uh, you know, the, the specter of Vietnam hung over that generation so yes. much. Yes. 
that that uh, that it, you you know I I still find it a little shocking that considering that the the cultural social history that we talk about that ninety percent of them you know never got entangled in in, in this business. Right. That's um, a, that's a so striking understanding statistic. That, 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 that experience uh, of of not just you know individually uh, with these many individuals what what look like you know as a small kid uh, disproportionate although I wouldn't call it that I wouldn't have had a sense of that then but you know from my memory of what I thought of as a, as a kid what what I could see is that disproportionate kind of way uh, that inequitable unequal way that that Chicanos and Latinos were involved in this war but also I think that kind of like uh, understanding is is kind of part of that, that larger story I'm talking about. It's, it's not mm-hmm. just about uh, that structure and, and the way that it impacts individuals, but how it also impacts the larger kind of community uh, where, where a critical mass, perhaps, mm-hmm. inside of the barrios of the Southwest uh, of, of our communities uh, have this as a common story, as a thread. Right. It ties us all up. Uh, and, and what's the long-term kind of impact of that uh, in, in all the kinds of ways that that uh, we need to think about. No, oh, that sounds great. And that's definitely another, I know work has been done uh, within, um, you know, Chicano and Latino studies on, on the, on Vietnam war, but your, your approach to it definitely sounds novel and very interesting and, and much needed work. Uh, that statistic you just cited was sh- striking to me that only 10% of the, that generation actually served in the war. That's um, uh, in my own direct family. I don't, neither my father nor my, nor his, uh, his brother served in the war, but they were, they were so much, you know, affected by it, you know, and, and mobilized, uh, you know, to activism and, and their eventual professionalization as we discussed earlier. So, uh, definitely look forward to reading that and hopefully having you back on when it's, uh, when it's done. Oh, oh thank you. I, I, I would jump at the chance. I appreciate it. <laughs> Great. Hey, Tomasco, again, I appreciate your time and I encourage our listeners to get a copy of your book, San Francisco uh, Latinos at the Golden Gate, and to read it and discuss it with others. And again, appreciate very much uh, you taking the moments out of your day today. And my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Certainly. Thanks again for tuning in to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and you have been listening to my conversation with Tomas Summers Sandoval about his recent book, Latinos at the Golden Gate, Creating Community and Identity in San Francisco published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013. Again, if you would like to contact us at New Books and Latino Studies, please do. You can reach us either on Facebook or by sending an email to newbooksinlatinostudies at gmail.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.